This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy Honors Program, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the program offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the program goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the private Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining. You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we are in the uh, fourth lesson of our current series, The Destruction of Paradise. And we want to come to you this morning with a quick lesson on a pretty controversial subject, one that has been... um, the subject of much conversation and much speculation for quite some time. And uh, actually, it's something that um, I changed my position on um, in this study. And I I think uh, you might be interested to find some of the results of the research I did. And so um, we're going to talk about who were the sons of God. in uh in genesis chapter six um and this kind of uh leads into the flood narrative so last week we dealt with um the evidence for a global flood and we looked at um what scripture has to say about the flood being global and we also looked at some of the physical evidence in the fossils and um in the rocks for example um uh, surrounding that. And then if you'll remember, uh, I want to say it is lesson nine of our podcast here. If you go all the way back to lesson nine, you will find um, some information about flood myths and cultures uh, around the world that have uh, flood myths and some of the dates um, concerning those. And so you can kind of see some of the information in culture that we didn't get to discuss last week Um in the uh, guest interview uh, that I that I had with Mark Lambert on his podcast, of course we aired that last week, but we didn't get to the culture part of it. And so I have a, a podcast that I recorded all about that, uh, and that is Lesson Nine. So you'll want to go check that out. Um, so uh, a couple things, how housekeeping uh, before we dive right in. So we're still looking for one more person to do some research for me uh, for the honors program. Um, If you'll remember, uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that I was looking 
for three research assistants to help me um, with the production of the honors program uh, that we discuss um, in the intro to every show. You, you heard it uh, mentioned. And so basically, we are looking for three people to do research for us to uh, help us to develop those uh, lessons that are going to be associated with that. And I've already got two who've said that they want to do it and uh, who have, I, I've started working with a little bit. And so we need one more. So if that's you, um, shoot me an email, steve at steveshram.com or uh, find me on Facebook, Twitter, wherever. And you can find me there uh, and send me an email about the research assistant uh, position. It's volunteer right now. Um, I do hope to be able to eventually turn that into a paid uh, position uh, as as the demand increases, uh, but we're not there yet, and so I just need some people who would be willing to help, who believe in what we're doing, and uh, maybe you don't have uh, the resources or the time to uh, devote to learn how to do a podcast or to start a website or a blog, uh, but maybe you are good at researching and you can put thoughts together and you're a good writer. Um, if that's you, we'd love to have you uh, to, to, to help us out with that or at least to be considered. So um, feel free, if you would, to just reach out to me for that. Another thing, if you're a, a newer listener, uh, for uh, for sure, you need to get on my uh, email list. And the reason for that is because every week we're going to send you uh, resources that will help you to defend your faith for free. And what we're going to do is start out by actually sending you a four-lesson email course that happens over the course of six days um, because there's an intro and a conclusion. But there's a four-lesson email course that we're going to send you called Defend Your Faith with Confidence. And it'll give you an overview of four of the toughest, in my opinion, uh, kind of objections to Christianity and kind of help you figure out how to answer those questions. Um, if you're not familiar with our ministry, really, we uh, we do this podcast is devoted to a young age creationism and creation science. Uh, but our website is um, uh, a general apologetics resource. I write an article that goes out every uh, week, and then from time to time, we also record short videos that are anywhere from three to eight or nine minutes in length uh, that will help you on specific little topics to uh, be able to answer objections and uh, articulate your answers in a gracious and friendly manner. So I encourage you to hop over there to do that. All you have to do is go to steveshram.com slash defend, steveshram.com slash defend, and I am going to put a link in the show notes for you to be able to access that easily. So let's dive right in. Who were the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6? And more importantly, who cares? <laughs> uh, why uh, Why do we even need to discuss this question? Uh, well, here's why. Because we need to get an understanding of why God flooded the world. That's important. Remember, these past few weeks, we've talked about the nature of God. We've talked about the historicity of Adam. And of course, um, in virtue of that, the historicity of the early chapters of the Bible. And then last week, we dealt with scriptural and, uh, and, and physical evidence for such a global flood. And so now we want to back up just a little bit and say, well, why did this happen? And the series, if you'll remember, is called The Destruction of Paradise. What we're really wanting to know is why would God create a perfect 
world and then destroy it. I mean, what was so bad that he created a world that he said was very good and then destroy it? There had to be a reason. And honestly, when I really started looking into this um, to discover the reason, I changed my view on this. Um, Now, you have to understand, this is a very hotly debated topic. Um, There is going to be some speculation involved. Uh, We cannot be overly dogmatic about this. For some reason, although I'm not sure why, there seems to be a lot of passion around this subject. Um, And uh, I, I think that maybe some of that is misguided it is important, uh, but usually I see the uh, the passion coming from what I believe is probably the incorrect side of, of the camp, and I'm not really sure why. And I realize that sounds vague, but as we go through it uh, this morning, maybe you will understand what I'm talking about. So uh, one thing that I should mention is there are, are a few views this morning that are not going to be considered. Now, the two we are going to look at are the fallen angels view and the Sethite view. And because I don't want to spend a lot of time here and get bogged down, um, there is a lot of study you can do, but there's two things that are going to happen. First of all, I'm not going to give you the pros and cons of each view. I'm going to actually uh, give a quick refutation of the view I used to hold, which is the fallen angels view. And then I'm going to give you a quick invitation to the Sethite view, which is the view that, uh, at the time at least, seems um, more plausible to me based on what we see in Scripture. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give you the pros and cons of each because that could take a very long time. And frankly, I'm not an expert on the subject. I'm just giving you what I've learned as a result of my own research. If you disagree with it, fine, we'll talk about it. Um, but I'm just going to give you what I uh, what I have concluded and some arguments for and against. Um, and the second thing is that we're not going to deal with some of the other modified or, or intermediate views. Really, the two views we're dealing with are the two extremes and the two uh, most widely uh, held views. We're not going to consider a view called the, the tyrant view. We're not going to look at the modified Sethite view, and we're also not going to look at the heavenly angel view. Those are three views that we are not going to consider. There may even be more out there, but those are the three um, that I came across in my research other uh, than the two that we're going to look at this morning. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive in to a little bit of what we've learned. We're going to start out uh, by reading the passage first of all. Um, and uh, for some reason I wrote down the passage, but I did not write down the reference. Um, and I want to say it is Genesis 6 and verses 1 uh, through 4. Yeah, that's what it is. So uh, Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4. This is uh, how it reads in the King James Version. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives, all of which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for man, or excuse me, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, 
The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Now, I want to give you Dr. Thomas Howe's rendering of this. Um, this is a literal rendering with the word order preserved. So this sounds very, very choppy in English, uh, but that's why. And when you actually hear some of the the words that are in there, it might help you to get a better understanding um, for the position that we're going to take. So this is the literal word-for-word rendering, um, even keeping the word order preserved. It says, And it was when the man began to multiply upon the face of the ground that sons they brought forth to themselves. And the sons of God saw the daughters of the man that good. Behold, they took to them woman from all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not reside in man forever, for also he is flesh, and his days will be one hundred and twenty years. The fallen ones were in the land in those days, and after this, when the sons of God came into the daughters of the man, and they bore to them, these are the warriors from ancient time, men of the name. So you can see there's a little bit of difference, of course, between those. One is the King James rendering. One is a, a literal rendering by Dr. Thomas Howe. Um, and of course, we realized that the, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew, um, and or the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so uh, when we go to... Uh, make an English trans- translation, uh, it's not always going to be literal word for word, even if it is considered to be a literal translation. Um, and we don't have time to get into all of that, but um, hopefully you understand what I mean by all of that. Okay, so let's first of all give a quick refutation of the fallen angel's view. Um, to summarize, this is the view that the sons of God were some kind of fallen um, angels that followed in the footsteps um, of Lucifer. And this view maintains that these sons of God fell from heaven and came down and began to um, uh, procreate with women, um, all of which they chose. They, they, they just they chose women, and uh, they saw that uh, the daughters of men, as the Bible states it, w- were fair and attractive, and therefore there was the intermingling of the seed somehow between um, the uh, fallen angels and humankind. And the view maintains that basically this corrupted the uh, the gene pool, as it were, that was on earth at the time. Uh, Chuck Missler, one of the major proponents of this view, suggested that this was Satan's plan to uh, thwart the appearing of the Savior. If you remember in Genesis 3.15, the first essentially prophecy was made at the time when Satan would be uh, defeated from the seed of the woman. And so this whole kind of narrative has been crafted um, to kind of explain how how maybe that becomes possible. Maybe the devil was trying to make sure that that did not happen by sending his fallen angels down to essentially corrupt the the gene pool. Now that sounds really really good, um, and quite frankly, up till this point, I have been compelled with it. And, and this um, 
strikes me as something that I should make as an obvious point. It's okay um, not to know everything. And here's what I mean. Um, you can't possibly uh, have all of your ducks in a row, so to speak, on every single issue um, at a given point in time. I mean, uh, that might not be a neat and tidy way of putting it, but I'm 28 years old. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I still have nowhere near all of the answers. Um, And I think probably the older I get, the more I realize how few answers I do have. That said, it's okay to tentatively um, take a position on something. And um, in this case, uh, based on teachers that I generally trusted, teachers that are generally reliable on uh, on these subjects, I decided to hold a, a view uh, based on a very little amount of study that I had done up to this point that I felt was correct. Um, and again, we're talking about a very uh, peripheral issue here. I mean, this issue is important. Everything in the Bible is important. Uh, but knowing who the sons of God were um, is not at, at the same level of understanding how to be saved, okay? So understand that there is a, a difference going on there, all right? Now, um, so it's okay not to know everything. Um, you can tentatively hold a position, uh, at least based on a little bit of study. I would uh, refrain from being too dogmatic on something that you haven't given any attention to. Um, but anyway, up to this point, I had held this view pretty loosely, but now that I've done a deep dive into it, I've changed my mind. And by the way, that's okay too. It's okay to change your mind. What we're in um, is a pursuit of truth. We're not in a pursuit of what sounds good or what feels good or what you've always believed to be true. Um, if there's good reasons to believe that something is true, then good, hold to it. Um, if there is better reason to believe that something else is true, then hold to that instead. Um, I, I'm reminded of the quote by Luther, and I'll, I won't be able to quote it exactly, but it basically says, look, I'm bound by my conscience and the scripture that I have affirmed um, to hold the view of scripture that I hold. And, uh, it, you know, um, I, I can't hold that which is contrary to my conscience. Um, and so that's how I feel about it. So so let me give you just a few reasons Um then I think we need to reject this view, uh, or at least why I've been compelled to reject this view. And then I'll give you uh, a quick invitation to the Sethite view, and then we'll be done. So first of all, on the fallen angel view, I find that it relies on a few things. It relies, first of all, on unjustified assumptions. Um, And uh, basically, when you come to the text, you might come to it based on things that you have heard about it before, and therefore you have a hard time um, releasing yourself from how those views informed your thoughts about it. Um, And to bring that full circle, let me give you the other things I believe it relies on, and that might make more sense. It relies on unjustified assumptions improperly or selectively defined words, and then circular reasoning for proof text support. Um, That is, if you assume the angel view, there are other texts of scripture that you can go to that seem to support 
this teaching. I'm thinking of there is uh, references in Job to sons of God. Um, and uh, there's also a reference in Jude that uh, is uh, a, a reference to fallen angels. And in the same verse, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and all of that is is mentioned. And it, it could seem like there is a connection there. But I think upon further um, investigation into it, if you do not assume the angel view outright, those proof texts just fall apart. And so any view that relies on you to assume the conclusion um, in order to find support for it, uh, that's not good reasoning. That's not that's not good logic. Um so uh, I understand that with an ultimate authority that might be different. Okay, you know, like if you're going to assume the laws of logic to prove the laws of logic, you can't get around that. Uh, in fact, I argue in that same way for the truth of Scripture. I believe that the Bible is an ultimate authority, and therefore it is self-attesting. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about within the context of Scripture. We're now trying to understand a view of Scripture, and you can't come to this particular thing with your preconceived notions of how it is and look for proof text. That's not how it works. And ultimately, I, I think that's the only way to consistently hold um, this view. So that's just one reason, uh, I, I, because it relies on unjustified assumptions, improperly or selectively defined words. That is, you might um, look at words like the uh, Nephilim and um, um men of renown, and think things about them that they don't actually mean. For exa- example, Nephilim is a word that really just means the fallen ones. It doesn't necessarily mean the fallen angels. Uh, we refer to the fall of man as the fall of man. And so there's good reason then to, to, to think that it could be something else going on there. That's just one example. Um, the second thing is that there's no cogent explanation for the flood. Now, this is contrary to what I thought. I really thought, and the way that um, that Missler kind of describes this, um, I really thought that the flood was in direct response to this, to the intermingling of the angels um, and the humans here on earth. Uh, but honest to goodness, uh, that makes no sense. Um, this was a flood to judge humanity the judgment was not on the spirit realm, as it were. This was a judgment on humanity. There's there's really no cogent explanation for God's responding the way he did if this fallen angel's view is true. Think that through a little bit. Now, you might have to read uh, into some of the sources that I'll provide in order to really get the reasoning and the argumentation for that. Um, but just think about it, you know, on the surface, on the face of it, there's really no logical reason for God to have destroyed the whole world if it's the spirit realm that caused the problem. Um, God did judge Satan and will judge Satan for what happened at the fall. But remember, um, the judgment was on humanity. Humanity made their own decision. It, the, the, the curse on the ground has nothing to do at all with Satan. It's all about a human choice. And so when you apply that same kind of logic to the flood, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and then there's no cogent explanation for the existence of the Nephilim post-flood. Um, if the reason for God destroying the world was because of this intermingling um, that happened uh, between a demonic line of people uh, and um, this the, the humans that were alive, uh, we see Nephilim 
after the flood. And as a matter of fact, we see a parenthetical note that goes in there um, that uh, Moses obviously inserted. He said there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that. And of course, we know that they ran into giants, the Israelites did, in the land of Canaan. And the same word is used for them the Nephilim. And so there's really no good explanation for their existence post-flood because we, we're obviously talking about something different. The Nephilim post-flood are purely human. No reference at all to them being angelic beings of any kind. And so we're arbitrarily, again, assuming that the Nephilim are something different in uh, before the flood than they are after the flood, even though the author directly compares them in the flood narrative. Um so there's no explanation at all for their existence after the flood on this view. Um, and that, again, goes back to the idea of selectively defined words, circular reasoning, and unjustified assumptions. All right. Um, next, number four, is that you have to deny or at least misapply Jesus' very teaching on angel and human interaction. Um, and I, I didn't write down the reference, but uh, Jesus, when he is... Um, speaking to a group of people there we find in the New Testament, he is dealing with the fact that angels cannot marry. And in those days, when they say marry, reproducing is what was in view. Um, the context there has nothing to do at all with just the fact of getting married. Um, and so the Sadducees come come to Jesus in this story and say, well, let's say we have a woman and uh, her husband dies, and then uh, the husband had seven brothers, and they all marry her, and each one of them uh, dies. Which one is she married to in heaven? Uh, who's going to be the husband? And Jesus is like, wait a minute. No, you, you're not, you're missing the picture here. There is no marriage in heaven. Angels do not marry. Neither are they given in marriage. And so, um, what you need to understand about that is that Jesus is, uh, Jesus at least seems to be saying that you can't have this kind of union, that angels can't, um, reproduce. And so there are ways that people try to explain that, um, away but ultimately, there's really no good explanation uh, for that, for angels being able to uh, reproduce with humans when it seems like they can't. Um, five, theologically, it's not clear that this view really has any place uh, in God's overall project. Uh, you know, I mean, why, what does it mean? Why, why, why include this random, seemingly unrelated chain of events happening um, in the beginning of the flood narrative because again it really there's no cogent explanation for the flood that results out of this fallen angels view and it's just not clear that this makes any sense we see in the bible this overarching story and we're going to talk about that a little bit in in this uh, in the invitation to the sethite view um but this particular view doesn't really make any sense there's no um there's no comparison uh, to anything else in the entire project uh, of the Bible to this particular event if it is carried out in the way that the fallen angel view maintains. However, on the flip side of that, it fits perfectly within the narrative of the rest of the Bible if we look at it the other way. And then finally, uh, number six, on a refutation of the fallen angel's view, proper exegesis seems to better support the uh, the Sethite view. Um 
even directly contradicting its criticisms. And for example, and I'm just going to use Chuck Missler on this again because he's so outspoken, um, he says that in order to hold the Sethite view, you have to infer lines of separation uh, going on. In other words, you have to infer a, um, a Canite line and a Sethite line, two lines of separation post-fall. You have to infer that from Scripture. And then you have to also infer the godliness of the line of Seth. And uh, Missler offers this as a criticism of the Sethite view. And actually, I think it's um, easily seen in the text, um, which is why we're going to go ahead and jump to that now, because I think you need to see that for yourself. So we're going to give you an invitation to the uh, Sethite view. Now, overall, uh, to me, this view seems to better fit the theological data um, that surrounds the entire Bible on this issue. And uh, specifically, I think it really works uh, well within the theological narrative of the Old Testament. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I kind of wrote down this, uh, this progression that we constantly see when we look in the Old Testament as it relates to God and his people. And uh, I would write it like this. You have establishment. That is, you have the uh, putting together of a uh, particular establishment, a, a people group or a nation or persons, uh, uh, people in a position of power, for example. You have establishment. And then you have intermingling. You have a relationship that is unauthorized by God. You have some form of um, adultery, some form of uh, idolatry, wherein uh, something else that does not align with the values you should hold as a follower of God um, has crept in. And then, naturally, you have a departure from God, whether that be um, you know, permanent or temporary, you have this departure from God. And then we see the judgment of God in that particular situation. We see the uh, correction that God levels uh, against that group or against that individual. And of course, this is typically followed by his mercy uh, excuse me, by his by his mercy, in that there is a remnant that is restored to God. Now, this is uh, a pattern that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Establishment, intermingling, departure, judgment, and then restoration. Now, um, this is exactly, exactly what happens on the Sethite view. And by the way, this pattern is always in relation to human beings. We don't see this pattern manifested in any way um, as it relates to the spiritual side of things throughout the Bible. Whenever um, Satan or demons or angels, um, heavenly beings are involved, um, 
it always looks a little bit different. It's not this specific pattern of establishment, intermingling, departure, judgment, and then restoration. Now, if the Sethite view is true, then what we have in Genesis chapter 6 is just exactly uh, this very kind of thing. Okay, we have um, the uh, those who are living in accordance with God's directives. These, of course, would be the sons of God, and I think there is um, a good reason to think that those are derived from the line of Seth, and we'll go over that in just a minute. Uh, and we have them intermingling with those who have decided that God is going to be out of the picture, that they can go through life and do their own thing completely without any regard for God and his ways, um, without consulting God on matters of their of their culture, of their upbringing, of their life, uh, just uh, uh, of everything that in the Bible we find that God is concerned with. He's concerned with the daily actions of his people, and we find uh, that the daughters of men, whoever they are, seem to have left this uh, this way of thinking. And as you look to previous chapters where this narrative is being built, you can follow the Canite line and you see this exact kind of thing. So um, so that's one reason, is that it seems to fit this theological narrative going on in the Old Testament much better. Secondly, uh, on this view, the flood destruction makes sense. Um, there is no indication, other than if you assume the angel view, there is no indication that this judgment was meant for um, spiritual beings at all. Nothing. Uh, nothing of the sort. This is obviously a direct response to the sinfulness of man. And of course, as we find um, as early as Genesis chapter 1, oftentimes um, the innocent, even in the form of animals and so forth, uh, tend to be affected, not to pay for necessarily, but they tend to be affected by the judgment that God brings upon the sinfulness of man, which, of course, man is God's principal creation. We were um, designed in his image, given the uh, authority and the rule over the earth, and so... Um, when we made the decision that we could be God, uh, in a sense, um, God decided to carry out his judgment on all flesh. And that is exactly what we see happening in um, this narrative, in, in the flood narrative. And the destruction makes complete sense um, and seems warranted if it is true that we are talking about the sins of people here and that humanity on their own right uh, turned their back entirely against God and as the scripture indicates every thought of their heart was evil continually now there is no no indication here that this destruction has anything to do with the 
spiritual realm, with the heavenly realm. This is a this is always in context to humans. It was it was humans and animals who received this judgment on earth. And when we look to New Testament passages and other passages in Scripture that refer back to this event, there is never any indication, unless you assume the angel view outright, there is no internal indication whatsoever that this judgment was carried out against um, against an otherworldly life form. Okay, now, uh, along those lines, then, thirdly, it's not clear that even if um, fallen angels could co-mingle with humans. Remember, we, we saw um, a few moments ago that it, Jesus seems to be teaching that this can't happen. But even if angels could co-mingle with humans, um, there's no uh, real evidence that this would be inherently sinful. And yet we know that uh, being unequally yoked is sinful in the sight of God. Um it is possible, and in fact, we see this quite a bit in these Old Testament narratives, that when one leaves their uh, first love, as it were, when one uh, ventures off to procreate or to intermingle with those who uh, are not followers of God, we always see that this is sinful and against what God has commanded. Now, on this point, Tyler Vela writes this, quote, uh, One of the most predominant themes of Genesis, and thus later the Mosaic regulations, is the theme of the immorality of intermarriage between the people of God and the ungodly among the nations. The theme of the two seeds in Genesis, uh, the godly seed and the ungodly seed, is seen throughout nearly every narrative leading up to the life of Joseph and the lineage of the twelve tribes. This theme will be a major emphasis for Moses before entering the land and will eventually be one of the largest stumbling blocks for the children of Israel during their time in the land. Close quote. And again, that seems correct to me. Uh, th- there just is no internal evidence that even if this could happen, that there's anything wrong with it. Um, and again, I, I don't think it it can happen necessarily. Um, I'm willing to be shown wrong, um, but I don't think there's any scriptural indication that it can happen. I think there's good evidence that it can't, uh, but even if it could, uh, it doesn't seem to me that it would be inherently sinful. I, I'm not sure what what would be evil about that? Um, in fact, there are even later scriptures that seem to indicate that the kind of bodies um, that angels, spiritual beings have now uh, are similar to what our resurrection bodies uh, will be like. And so in that respect, I don't really see any reason why it would be sinful, especially if we're eventually going to have that kind of uh, that kind of body ourselves. Now, that's a little bit speculation on my part. Um, certainly not arguing for that, but I think there's a, a case that can be made for that in Scripture. Okay, number four. The narrative leading up to chapter six actually uh, supports both the idea of the lines of separation between the Sethite line and the Canaanite line and the godliness of Seth. Um, 
contrary to the claims of uh, Missler, who, as we've already mentioned, was uh, an avid supporter of the fallen angel view. Now, um, Dr. Thomas Howe writes this um, about each of these, and these are going to be a couple long quotes, so I apologize, but I think they're going to be helpful. So first, on the lines of separation, he says, quote, the similarity of the names of the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth invite comparison. There are some obvious parallels and contrasts between the descendants of Cain and Seth if we just compare the two lists in order. But if we move the list of Cain's descendants down, there are some additional comparisons and contrasts. The names Cain and Kenan derive from the same root. Cain's firstborn son is Enoch. Cain built a city which he named after his son Enoch. Enoch was a city dweller. By contrast, the Enoch in Seth's line walked around with God. Cain's second son was Erod, which name comes from the same root uh, as the name Jared uh, in Seth's line. Next in Cain's line is Mahujael, which means smitten by God, which contrasts to Mahaliel, which means the praise of God. Next is Methusael, which has the same letters as Methuselah. Then follows Lamech, the sixth from Cain and the seventh from Adam, who was a murderer and separated from God, and Lamech, the sixth from Kenan and the eighth from Adam through Seth. Enoch, who walked around with God, is the seventh from Adam in Seth's line. Lamech in Cain's line produces three sons and one daughter. Notice that the descriptions of the professions of Lamech's sons each seems to relate to the primary activities of life. Jabal is the progenitor of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Jubal is the progenitor of those who are entertainers. And Tubal-Cain is the progenitor of those who forge bronze and iron implements. Interestingly, there is no descendant of Cain who was the progenitor of any religious practice or priestly caste that might be responsible for directing the worship of God. These observations seem out of place in this context. From Cain to Lamech, the context has portrayed this line as a people separated from God. However, these characterizations of the societal influences of the descendants of Cain seem completely harmless. And perhaps that's the point. The descendants of Cain are going about their lives, marrying and giving in marriage, and not knowing or caring until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came. Their city presents an organized and prospering society, hiding the murderous character of its founder and inhabitants. The city of Enoch, founded in separation and rebellion against God, offers a contrast to the city of God that Adam, the or excuse me, that Abram, the descendant of Adam through Seth, sought. Close quote. So uh, this uh, tremendous comparison, and you have to remember this, that in, in biblical terms, especially in, in ancient Hebrew times, the naming of things was so, so important. Um, things were named a certain way for a reason. If for nothing else, it seems that God is able to communicate theological truth 
uh, to us through the understanding of naming. And so it certainly seems a um, either a terrible coincidence or an intentional um, um, uh, directive and an, an intentionality, I guess, by God to include this kind of information. Now, that's just the lines of separation. I have a much shorter quote, um, but to the point, on the godliness of Seth, also from Hal. Um, quote, the character of the descendants of Seth is diametrically the opposite of the descendants of Cain. It begins with Seth and Enosh, who call upon the name of the Lord. The restatement of the creation of Adam in the image of God in 5, 1 through 2, coupled with the statement in 5, 3, that Adam brings forth a son in his own image, draws a line from Adam, the son of God, through Seth, the son of Adam, to his descendants as the sons of God through Adam. Chapter 5 concludes with Noah, the one who would bring comfort from their toil, and Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Close quote. So we have here this clear evidence that there is a demarcation. There is this evidence that we have a godly line coming down through Seth. And then we have this these clear separation, um, these lines of separation that can really be seen when you start to do a comparison of the names. And of course, there's more reasons um, that Dr. Howe includes specifically in his paper that I read, um, but we don't have time to get into them all here. I think this was a good enough example um, that this can be seen. And so... Um, you know, one of the things that we should not miss here, and I have more for you here, but one of the things that we should not miss is the fact that the reason why the flood came is that we have this godly line who has decided that they are going to give up what they know to be good and what they know to be true for their own pleasures. Remember, the Bible says that they began to take wives, all of whom they chose. And this means that they were indiscriminate. They didn't They didn't stay within the godly line. They went to the daughters of men, and they all started intermingling. And, um, you know, this really uh, doesn't uh, take too much stress, uh, mental stress, uh, to see, to think about. Um, how many people have gotten married, and I'm thinking mainly about guys here, who have gotten married and began to just give in to the every whim of their wife. Why? Well, they're enticed by her. They don't want to be rejected by her. Men, and I am one, all right, uh, but men are a lot weaker a lot of times than they let on. And um, so I, I definitely think that it's not too hard to see how you could very easily get drawn away from God and drawn into your own personal pleasures and personal uh, lusts, especially if you're drawn in by um, those women who want nothing to do with God. And this, again, this works in reverse too. I mean, you could grow up uh, in in church and you could grow up with a good family and uh, be a young lady and grow up and find a young man who you are infatuated with and very attracted to who wants nothing to do with God. And he could actually pull you away. And I've seen it. I, I mean, I'm young. And I've seen this. I've seen this happen. 
So it certainly can. And I think it's completely reasonable to assume, or not to assume, but rather to conclude that this is the kind of thing that happened here. And again, I think a lot of us have this preconceived idea that we, we got from some other teacher that these are fallen angels. But I'm telling you, if you just let go of that preconception for a few moments and look at this objectively and the kind of things that God has been dealing with and writing about thus far, this really makes sense. We're dealing with the depravity of man here directly. This was a judgment on man, and it's very apparent from the text that man is at fault. Um, Now, uh, similarly here, number five, there are many exegetical markers which connect the narrative of Genesis 6 directly to the previous chapters. For example, in verse number two, We see the sons of God saying the daughters of men are fair or good. And this reminds us of when Eve saw that the fruit was good. When she got enticed and when she got lured away. And we see this kind of textual parallel here. Also, in verse number two, we see the sons of God taking wives of all whom they chose. We just discussed this, right? But this connects back to Lamech on Cain's side who took two wives, thereby ignoring the marital pattern set forth by God in the garden. Now, also with the above, we see the corruption of the godly line of Seth. Remember, we just went through that. We see how the the godly line of Seth has become corrupt. So, um, this I think is, uh, and there's plenty more of this kind of evidence as well that connects the previous narratives up to Genesis six. And it all makes sense. It's it's a progression where we're seeing we're seeing the early story of man. We're leading up to the destruction of paradise. And remember, kind of the overarching question in this series is: we want to know why, why would God flood the world? Well, here's an answer. I mean, here is your answer. The world was corrupt, evil. That's all these people thought about continually. Even the ones who had followed God were being drawn away. And it can happen, of course, to any one of us. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians ten twelve, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth Take heed, lest he fall. Right? So, uh, it really could happen. We need to take this as a lesson. But it's really only an applicable lesson if we understand it in the view that this is just too corrupt. um, Or or a corrupt line versus a godly line. And then we see the godly line becoming corrupt. This makes sense. Okay? Number six. This also gives us a reasonable explanation for the mention of the Nephilim. So Moses, number one, was pointing this out because they were getting ready to invade Canaan. We must not miss the theological significance of this parenthetical note, okay? Um, There was also Nephilim in Canaan. You remember the spies saw them and reported that there were giants in the land. And I think what Moses is doing here before they enter the land of Canaan, God is showing them 
that these guys were here before. And what did God do? God took care of the problem. God overcame them before. And therefore, he can overcome them again. Now, importantly, Nephilim does not necessarily mean giants. It simply means fallen or fallen ones. In, in fact, there's really not a specific understanding of what it means. Now, it could very well be that these were giants. I, I'm not arguing that. But the question is, uh, must they have been demonic uh, spirits or uh, fallen angels of some kind in order to be considered giants? Uh, we have giants living today and who have lived in years gone past who I don't think any would say were um, infected with faulty genetic mutations uh, brought on by the intermingling of a human with a fallen angel. So if that's possible in today's world, especially with the genetic diversity being as low as it is uh, today versus what it would have been back then, I think this is uh, completely reasonable. I see no reason at all. And we're talking about people who had a much longer time to live uh, more opportunities to procreate with more kinds of people, more genetic diversity. To me, there are all kinds of plausible explanations for there being Nephilim before and after the flood on this view. Because it's obvious that the Nephilim after the flood and the giants that we see today uh, were not at all dependent on these being some kind of mystical union between a human and a spiritual being. So I see no reason to impose that idea back onto the text in Genesis 6. Now, uh, again, if these are simply mighty, giant-sized humans, then their pre- and post-flood existence is not problematic in the least. Um, especially uh, since we know that humanity became immediately corrupt again, right there at the Tower of Babel. And um, there's actually a connection between Nimrod, who was a mighty post-flood warrior, and of course the founder of Babel and Babylon, and the Nephilim. And we don't have time to get into that connection, but that's something for further research. And so certainly it seems a better explanation of all of the data taken as a whole and a more reasonable um, um, insertion or, or a more reasonable um, inclusion into the text in the spot that it is uh, if we're just talking about corrupted humanity, possibly from the two different lines. I think this makes uh, sense. Now, uh, Lee Anderson Jr., writing on the Answers in Genesis website, has uh, proposed a few difficult questions to answer for the Sethite view. Um, he says it's not clear why Moses would use the language of the sons of God, which, if taken at face value, is only used in the Old Testament to refer, uh, to, refer to angelic beings. Now, uh, there are similar renderings in the Old Testament, such as in Deuteronomy 14.1 and 32.5, and then Hosea 1.10 and some others. Um, 
they sound kind of like this, and they're used in reference to uh, those who seem to be believers of God. But um, this, none, none use this exact formula, sons of God, that we find in Genesis 6. And yet, there are references in Job and other places that seem to indicate at face value that the sons of God refers to angels. Um and uh, in Howell's paper, which I am going to link you to so you can read for yourself, he does argue against this a, a little bit and kind of gives some examples um, how uh, some of the original text would shed some light on that. Um, Anderson also says it's not clear why the reader shouldn't assume that the daughters of men are from the same line as the sons. Um, and uh, again, I think... I think maybe we answered that. I think that um, uh, we can look at the uh, lines leading up to this and make a very reasonable inference that there were um, two different lines. And the fact that it was all of whom they chose, the sons of God took all of whom they chose, they saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. I think um, the fact that this juxtaposition is there, this contrast is there, is reason enough to assume that the daughters of men are not from the same line of Seth. Um, I just don't think it would have even been mentioned um, otherwise. Okay, now, he also says that it gives no explicit, uh, excuse me, explicit reason for the note about the Nephilim. But again, when contrasted with the prior chapters leading up to this in the light of Mosaic authorship, it seems to fit. So even the most common criticisms against the Sethi view seem to be based on misunderstandings of it. Uh, and they seem to be um, at least reasonably answered by its proponents. And so, for, you know, for these reasons, I mean, uh, when I really began looking at this, um, this is not the direction I intended for this study to go. Uh, but, you know, I, I, can't, I couldn't help but to see what these other guys had argued for. I, I really, uh, I respect many of the teachers who hold to some version of the angel's view, but I can't see any reason in light of the arguments that I gave here and the study that I did on my own. I can't see any reason uh, that the Sethite view is not uh, plausible um, and not more plausible. Uh, so, uh, that is where I have been led to to go, and especially since I wanted to answer the question in this series of why would God destroy the world? Well, under this view, it's clear. It's clear. As the Bible states, every thought in their heart was evil continually. Why was it like that? It's because they were marrying, given a marriage. They were not concerned with the things of God at all. They wanted nothing to do with Him. And remember, Jesus says that... Uh, towards the end, it is going to be like it was during the time of Noah. Now, we can either assume that that means that the world is going to become very corrupt and very, almost totally opposed to the things of God, which seems a reasonable inference, or we can assume that fallen angels are going to come back uh, again and begin intermingling and corrupting the gene pool, so to speak, of the people on earth. Now, what Missler wanted to argue was that something similar to that was probably going to happen, and that was a prophecy that could only be understood in light of taking Genesis 6 as the fallen angel's view. 
But you can see the circular nature of this. This is assuming what it's trying to prove. It makes much more sense, at least to me, that what we're going to be seeing towards the end of uh, our time on Earth is the exact same kind of thing they were seeing there. A total corruption of humanity of his own accord. This has been the story from the beginning. Now, in the show notes, I'm going to link you to the papers um, that I used to research this issue so you could do your own research. And hopefully, I've you know given you the tools you needed as a fair-minded person to, to be persuaded. And again, I'm sorry that I didn't take a longer time and go through all the pros and cons of each particular view, but I trust that this gives you what you need to uh, be able to make sense of this issue. And I didn't do this more thorough compare and contrast because I wanted simply to highlight the theological point that the Sethite view offers. But at the same time, I wanted to express reasonable doubt for the view that many hold and, of course, the view that I used to hold because I don't think it has the tools to answer the question, why did God flood the world? What is with the destruction of paradise? I think it's because, once again, humanity corrupted itself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and want to say thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for allowing us to have your word that we can understand it in a day, Lord, where many are abandoning it, when many are turning over the early chapters of uh, your precious word uh, to be interpreted in terms of myth and, and allegory. Father, that's not our persuasion here, and uh, surely we could turn out to be wrong one day, but Father, we, we assume that you are the best communicator in order to appears that you've communicated uh, truth as we understand it here today in your word. And we want to say thank you for that. And I pray that you would just help us to be able to gain a deeper and better understanding of your word each and every time we open its pages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, well, thanks for joining me again this week on the Creation Academy. Uh, don't forget my announcements earlier. I want you to consider we need one more person willing to do some research work and writing for the video material that is going to be uh, presented as a part of the Creation Academy Honors Program. And so if you feel the Lord speaking to you on that, I, I pray that you would maybe consider reaching out and um you know, if you have some previous research work you've done, maybe showing me some of that, uh, that would be really, really helpful. And um, and then don't forget, if you're new or you haven't done it yet, to join the email list, steveshram.com slash defend, where you can learn more about what we do here at our ministry and, uh, and get equipped to defend your faith with confidence. God bless, and we will see you next week where we're going to be dealing with Noah. A man who the Bible says was perfect in his generations. We're going to find out why and what that means for us. Thanks and have a great one. Bye-bye.